Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Do writers become readers? Well, they most certainly do, if best-selling author Alice Taylor is anything to go by. Alice joins me to talk about a book she has written and two books she has read by accident, which sometimes tend to be the best kind. The latter being a book which promises to change your life. We also track down the author of that book to explain what he means exactly by changing your life. And we continue and finalize our tribute to a man who was a regular contributor to this program. I say was because he passed away in January of 2015. Last Saturday week, he would have celebrated his 100th birthday. To me, he was a local celebrity, and I was honored to have spent time, albeit not as long as I would have liked, in his company. So, all of that should keep you and I occupied over the next hour. I hope you had a good, safe and healthy week. Thank you for joining us once again, and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Do step right in. all over the place. They're like Brown's cows these days. Books whose authors promise you will change your life. In fact, change your life forever. There are many to choose from, like seven self-help books that actually changed my life, or 30 self-help books that permanently changed my life. Whether it's conquering phobias, romantic rejection, or anxiety, there's a book there for you. Trouble is, you have to take most of them with a pinch of salt. Not too much, mind you. It's supposed to be bad for your health. But when Alice Taylor tells me that she's read a book that promises to change your life, and she's impressed, then so am I. Now, promise me you won't turn the radio off when I tell you that it's a book of poetry. Give it the benefit of the doubt, stay where you are, don't touch your radio, and you can blame me afterwards if I wasted your time. 
Actually, Alice read two books that impressed her, but more about that later. Firstly, though, I want to find out how she's been faring herself over these last horrible few months. I came in my door on the 12th of March and locked it. And I thought, ooh, I'm in Mountjoy. How is this going to go? And um, I must say, John, I found it um, a kind of a, an, an amazing experience. I gardened. I would say, I would say now the garden saved my sanity. I wrote... I'd finish one book and started and finish another one. I read a lot. I read a lot. And I was fierce lucky that I had a good selection of books. Well, now, to be honest, John, I live in a house full of books. And I don't know if you ever heard of Mary Kondo, but she's this Japanese woman that um, decided we should all clear our clutter. Now, I read her book. I heard her being interviewed or read somewhere afterwards. She believed that every house should have less than 30 books. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, sure, that's ridiculous. Because, John, I have about 3,000 books. But no, they're not all mine. I inherited them because I, I married a reader and um, my sisters were readers and I inherited books. And they all left to end off to the heavenly library in the sky. And Alice inherited all their books. So I can put out my hand at any stage and there are books. Then at Christmas, I always buy myself a book and then people give me books. And I love reading books. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's amazing, John. You might read a book and you might suffer while you read it. And you think, oh, God. But when you were read, you'd say afterwards, God, I'm glad I read that book. And the strange thing is, just before the pandemic started, I had read a book called The Sun Does Shine. Now, this was a book that was written by a man who had spent 30 years on death row, which was an extraordinary tale of survival. Now, you'd say that could have been a depressing book. It wasn't. Now, it's amazing in the light of recent happenings, Black Lives Matter. This guy was black. He was young and he came up before a, a white judge and a white jury. He had an alibi. He had everything. He finished up in jail. He didn't have a hope in hell. And he tells the story of how he survived on death row. It was an amazing book. And I must say, no, I absolutely uh, followed every word with him, suffered with him. But he survived. And after 30 years, he came out. All right. Now, I want to talk to you about three books in particular this mm-hmm. evening. And the first one, The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Christy left the rear, left area. Yes, yeah. yes. Tell me about that. Well, I'll tell you about that. That's a strange story, John. I finished up with two copies of it. You wonder how that happened. I was inside in the bookshop in Bandon and I saw The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Now, I was reared with, with beehives. We were surrounded by them. <laughs> my, my brother was a beekeeper. So it was The Beekeeper. I zoned in and I thought, oh, I love that. It's about beekeeping. And then my sister, who was reared in the same farm, uh, saw it and she thought, oh, I will love that. So she bought it for me. I finished up with two copies. Then one night I was listening to the news and the penny dropped Aleppo, Syria oh my god I thought there's more to this than meets the eye so I started it I think I started about the time I started cocooning John it's a tough book it's a beautiful book it's beautifully written and I suffered and I cried it's a very tough book but it's a beautiful book. And you know what it did to me? Every time I put on that book, I said, what am I complaining about? Mm-hmm. When you see what those refugees, now the girl that wrote it, her, her, her parents had been refugees. And this girl, she had um, worked in, in the camps in, in, in Athens. So she was on the ball. Like she knew what they suffered. Oh God, what they suffered. And are still suffering, John. I mean, when you look at all those camps and the 
poor misfortunate people. That's why, in a way, like John, I wonder is the pandemic will we learn a world where the likes of the beekeeper of Aleppo can happen and it's still happening. It's a terrible world where children are dying of malnutrition. It's an appalling world. So we are getting it wrong. We're getting the big picture wrong. So will we learn from the from the pandemic? I don't know. That's a big question. The second book is um, a book you told me was written by Roger Housden, and it's yes. called Ten Poems to Change Your Life. Now, we'll be speaking to Roger later in the programme, but you weren't impressed initially by the title. But you, no. you, you know the old saying, you can't judge a book you by the really cover. You really can't. Yeah. Like. And, you know, the, uh, John, this is one of the, the blessings of having a lot of books in the house, books that you inherited as a result of having ho- hoarders. And um, I had a sister, Ellen, who spent all her life in Toronto, but she spent the last 10 years of her life before she died of cancer here with me and she was a great reader and all her books are still on a bookshelf she'd huge variety of books and occasionally I'd walk in you know, she's said for 10 years but over the years I would pick up one of her books and read it but for some reason I had actually never picked up 10 Poems to Change Your Life, which was there on the bookshelf. And there, a couple of weeks ago, I got up early one morning and I was meandering around, as you do, if you get up too early to get into action. And I picked up this book and I thought, did I see this before? And maybe I didn't. So I brought it back into bed with me. I love reading in bed. There's great comfort about reading in bed. And I opened up this 10 Poems to Change Your Life. And I looked at the poets and I, John, I never heard of one of them. Now, the last one is by St. John, John of the Cross, of course. I had heard of him who hadn't. But um, he had, the first one was Mary Oliver. Then he had Walt Whitman. Now, I vaguely might have heard of them, but I'd never read any one of the poems in that book previous to picking up the book. Roger Housden grew up in St. Catherine's Valley. It's a cleft in the Cotswolds on the edge of Bath and Somerset in England. He has led contemplative journeys all over the world and in an earlier life he was a freelance feature writer for the Guardian newspaper and an interviewer for the BBC. He's been a full-time author since 1997. He's the author of 20 books on poetry, art and travel, including the best-selling 10 Poems series, which started in 2001 with 10 Poems to Change Your Life. It is actually uh, the first in the series. Uh, I think there are eight in that series over the last 20 years. This was the very first one. It came out just after 9-11 in 2001 and seemed to speak to the moment at that time and continues to do so because uh, it's by far my best-selling book. And you you have a follow-up then, uh, 10 Poems to Change Your Life Again and Again, I believe. Yeah, that one came, I think, in around 2007. But there's also, you know, 10 poems to open your heart, 10 poems to set you free. Taking essentially a a different theme of uh, the soul's journey, we could say, and using, you know, 10 poems to explore that particular theme, mostly through my own experience, my own personal experience. Now, the lady in question that... um told me about this book and she was gushing not only about the poems themselves but your analysis of them too. 
Uh-huh. Well, it's gratifying. Uh, I mean, the, the word analysis doesn't quite work, although it's completely natural for you to use that term, because these are not in any sense academic books. They're more, uh, you know, my, my essay that follows each poem comes out of my own experience, my life experience, and the way in which this particular poem, a particular poem, highlights or clarifies my own journey through this life. And so, you know, I, I speak about that in pretty personal detail. The ten poems explore subjects like the longing for love, the wisdom of dreams, and the courage to live an authentic life. Can you expand on that for me just a little bit, Roger, please? Yes. One of the main themes throughout Ten Poems to Change Your Life is the experience of love, both personal love, Uh, for another, and a love that includes the world. And that tends to thread its way as a a theme through the different poems. And also, courage, you mentioned. Well, yes, courage to, um, to take the next step that you know you need to take, even though it can be frightening. So, you know, those moments of change and opportunity that come in everybody's life in one form or another, often in the form of crisis. You know, it can be a major change that seems to be looming in one's life, uh, as these poems show, and I hope I do in my essay, you know, these kind of uh, significant moments, however frightening even they may appear, can lead us in the way we need to go. In the inside cover, or flap of the book, Ten Poems to Change Your Life, Roger Housden begins, This is a dangerous book. Not the ideal statement to make if you wish to sell a book. So, what exactly does he mean by that? It's always dangerous when you actually listen quietly to the truth that you already know, because the truth you already know may contradict your current life experience. So in other words, you know, you may be in a situation in your life that deep down you know actually is not optimal for you and that really, ideally, you would need to move from. And so these poems actually encourage that step into the great unknown. The great unknown is your life. I was saying this to you before we started recording. What frightens a lot of people away from poetry, people who wish to take it on board, is the difficulty of understanding a poet's frame of mind. And you may come away from a poem believing something completely different or the opposite to what the poet intended. How do you get around that? Well, first of all, we often in life come away with uh, something completely different to what the person we were speaking to intended. Isn't that so? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that, that happens between husband and wife, that happens between friends and business partners and everything else. But your point is well taken that, uh, you know, people, I think, can have a certain anxiety or fear about uh, poetry because maybe it sounds uh, too erudite or academic or sophisticated, but it really depends on what kind of poetry you, you look at and read. So let me give an example. The very first poem in this uh, in this Ten Poems Change Your Life is called The Journey by Mary Oliver. So she speaks in all her poems, Mary Oliver speaks in a very straightforward, understandable voice that any of us could have been saying to any of our friends, except, of course, the way she happens to structure the words in a line is quite unique and yet very simple. So, you know, the important thing is, I think, is to know, is to come to know which poems, uh, which poets speak in this, this common term, this common, common language. 
So, for example, just a few lines of this first poem, there's nobody who wouldn't understand this. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. And that brings part one of Where the Road Takes Me to a close this evening. Roger Housden and Alice Taylor will rejoin us later in the programme as we also remember Johnny O'Mahony of Touring Dove and Bally Desmond. Part two on the way. Saturday week last, or the 8th of August last, Johnny O'Mahony of Touring Dove Bally Desmond would have celebrated his 100th birthday. Unfortunately, he fell short by little more than five and a half years. Johnny passed away in January of 2015. Regular listeners to this programme will have heard me wax lyrical about Johnny on many an occasion, for so many good reasons. My only regret is that I only knew him for two and a half years. If the remaining 92 and a half were just as interesting, and I have no doubt but that they were, then I have really missed out. A colourful character in every sense of the word. A historian in every true sense of the word. A gifted storyteller with a wonderful turn of phrase. I still consider myself lucky to have managed to record a lot with him on every occasion I called. The only rule set down by Johnny was not to do so before 12. Either he liked his lie-in, or the day was long enough when you were on your own or maybe, and possibly, a bit of both. Here Johnny speaks about borders and fences, the trouble that they have caused, and the trouble that they can still cause. Like what they me here now, it wasn't, was never let into live with any hundreds, and it was a wild wilderness like, and then if you wanted to set a bit for crop, you should fence in an acre or two of a year, or, you know, to protect it from the animals, you see. Yeah. And that was the idea of the fences at all, anyway. Yeah. To protect the crops from the cattle. That's what that was one of, what That was the idea of the fences being put out for. But they caused a lot of trouble. Oh, God, I went when one animal would cross some other one, and I don't know. That would be looking. I think people were very law uh, conscious at him. That was what for the smallest thing. You know, and take notes of because, of course, I was ever frustrated. It was very hard to blame anyone, and I'd look to put that blame in something, anyone that got along with the next door neighbor or anyone at all, or, or have a difference of opinion. But thankfully, that doesn't happen anymore now, when young. The electric fence was the greatest thing that was ever taught. I might tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On a lighter note, now, talk to me about uh, matchmaking. 
Oh yeah, that's right, all right. But of course, matchmaking was um, that well, at least that thought was necessary. But when I think about it after, it wasn't so awfully necessary at all because. Uh, in some families, of course, where they would have no property, whoever would be, uh, see the girl that who should have the fortune, as we call it, or the dowry, and she'd marry a farmer, and he'd have a sister at home, maybe, or a couple of sisters, and she'd have the money, and it would be going to her husband, and, to, and, to, and the, the, the husband thing could have a couple of sisters. That one married to her, and they'd get more. So that some of that money, mm-hmm. so that the same amount of money could marry a, a dozen people, a dozen ladies, into other farms. Mm-hmm. And one they got to America then to make the money to come home and marry a farmer. Yeah, that yeah. what happened. And right. regardless of how much love was there, uh, the dowry was still vital and, and a part and it parcel of it. the only thing, don't mind doing. Well, love had gone out the window <laughs> by that particular time, it said. But um, every farmer then, no matter how small, would need a dowry. No matter how small the farmer, he'd need dowry to all the so, so many cows he'd have, and if he had more cows, then he'd want more, he'd want more fortune, yeah. But that money generally didn't stay with the man, the man that got it at all. It would have to go to his sister or some other one belonged to him. All right. So yeah. as I said, the same money could could move a lot of, of, of people around and make a lot of matches. Right. So the amount of the dowry was determined by the amount of land or property that the farmer exactly, had. Exactly. That's right. How many cows? And that's right. How many cows? That was the... This is different the story, yeah. yeah. And of course, if you had other properties, then if you had a bull and a and a pump in the yard and things like that, he'd be looking for more money. And of course, there was another thing about it. You know, I had no idea. No, I won't say this. Uh, the landlord, not alone, demanded the rent off of the farmer. But he uh, would also want the first of his daughter, single daughter's company. Yeah. Not for marriage now. So, in other words, the landlord made his own rules. The landlord made his own rules, and, and you dare not change it, and you dare not insult him. And if we met him on the road, or if he spoke to you at all, you should, you should raise your cap and bend your knee to him. That'll show he was somebody like. Mm. That was relevant. That particular touching the gap, gap part of it was really relevant up to not so long ago at all. But, but no, the crowd don't really care on that really well, right? They don't dock their, their cap at anybody. And they think that is good and as bad as everybody else. And they're right. Mm. And they are. Yeah. And you, you said to me that time that love, there was no such thing as love, it went out the window. So in that case, so a lot of couples, maybe a girl ended up with a fellow that she had no interest in whatsoever, or didn't mm. want to marry. Well, when she, I'd say she, she got a, a chance for, and that nobody pointed out, she certainly would get rid of him very fast. <laughs> um, and then if she was anywhere for it, she gave me dog life. Um, but of course, what I did go to America that time was um, a lot of the girls to make the, the money to come home to marry a farmer.
When Johnny died at the end of January 2015, his funeral mass was said by Father Pat McCarthy, who was in Ballydesmond at the time. Father Pat is now in Gunevgilla in County Kerry. He remembers Johnny as a wonderful and colourful character, with a memory and knowledge to match. He was quite exceptional, really, for different reasons. He lived in quite remotely, in a sense, and he was well up off the road. I remember I went to Belly Desmond in 2004, so it was probably the beginning of 2005 when I would have got as far as visiting. I was visiting the families. I would, by the time I got as far as John it would be probably early 2005. And I remember talking to Colleen to Noreen Collins down on the main road and asking her where Johnny lived. And she pointed me to the roadway coming up to Johnny's house. Now, as it happened, he wasn't there on the day, but my memory always was the house, a low house. There were two or three cats drinking milk outside the front door. <laughs> so it meant he wasn't gone long. So I called back a few days later and Johnny was there and he was sitting inside in the corner. We were talking. And he was asking me where I was from, and I mentioned where my home place, Mean Togues. There was a Julie Brosnan, who was Julie O'Mahony, in Mean Togues, married in Mean Togues, and she was from Shanbella. So I asked him if they were related, and he said, yeah, they were cousins. The first thing I meant I was going to say to Johnny was, Johnny, be very careful, you get burned to death, because he had an open fireplace, and there were papers and books scattered around very close to the fire. And... Um, our conversation was just ordinary enough, talking about land and cattle and locals and events. I didn't see him that often because Johnny lived in Torindo, which is at the extreme end of the Valley Desmond Parish. So Johnny's church, Johnny's school, Johnny's post office, they were Kishkeim. So Johnny was always going to Kishkeim to sell him he'd come to Valley Desmond. Every kind of disease that you could think of was had by people because you see they weren't well fed the the accommodation was hopeless to the white world you know and it wasn't too very clean right like that and the, of course the simplest little thing now you wouldn't hear diphtheria or any one of those things anymore no everything that you could think of was generally from that things wouldn't weren't clean at all and then people had no resistance because they weren't well fed enough for it mm-hmm. and then of course the doctoring was, you could say was non-existent altogether look at the amount of, of, of strides they have made in medicine these days and now with what they can do for people with people's heart and people's hearing everything that you could think of that seemed to be making strides very forward very much so how qualified were the doctors or how good they, were they? they they were hopeless in the world yeah. they were just pure quacks right, sir? <laughs> they were just pure quacks you know, that, that if you come and bring me for for a, a, a disease was the same to them you see like that and it was the very same now in, in the veterinary surgeons they have gone, gone very forward altogether in their thinking. And, but finding out what a disease was and how to treat it, that was it. Got to know before people couldn't understand what caused any disease. Mm-hmm. No, they simply understand what causing every disease. I know what they're trying to get the cure for it. And that, we should ask There's some great successes lately. Yeah. But in the veterinary business as well as, as, as the doctoring. Back then, whatever disease you had or however sick you were, the doctor, be he a quack or qualified or whatever, he tended to give you the same thing for every disease. That's right, all right. Yeah, that's what the same thing, that's right. That's, yes, that's right. And that's not so, so long ago at all. That's not, not so long ago. What they can do for everything, you know, what they can, mostly for the heart problems. 
they can they can do mighty things with with that anyway these days. So yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course, it's a very small thing that wouldn't be wrong with your heart, but to finish you off like, but as I said, then that well, you have to understand what's wrong, you see. And when you understand what's wrong, it's very easy to do something about it. And when people died back then, the period of mourning was fairly lengthy and there was... It was a year long. Yeah. That's right. And of course, you know, everybody that uh, that people did belong to them because they'd have a diamond patch upon their left arrow. Oh, yeah, yeah. So on for a year. Yeah. And you wouldn't go to dead dances or any weddings or anything for a whole year would, when the whole year would be passed. And listening to Johnny speak there, I wonder what he would have made of the coronavirus, or more importantly, how he would have coped with it. Well, Johnny was known far and wide for his depth of knowledge and his sharp memory. And Father Pat McCarthy has a story here that's a prime example of those talents in the man. I got an email from a lady in the States with a very unusual name as far as, well, she wasn't an Irish name, Bridget Tomasiccio. And it was a very, very long email. And her parents, I don't know whether she herself was from Cork or her parents were from Cork, but she had Cork County connections. And she was looking for information about a family. There were Murphys, and she didn't have much on this Murphy family. And, of course, I had less. And I was making inquiries locally as to who these people possibly might be. And I remember going to Dan Casey in Barry Desmond one day, and Dan said, look, your only chance is go up to Johnny Mahoney. So obviously Johnny had the reputation of being the, the Shanaki in the locality. And I went to Johnny and I told him, I gave him the information I had. And Johnny said, go back the path in the cemetery in Barry Desmond. Go back three quarters of the ways and turn up to the right. And there is a concrete homemade cross. And there's a little plaque in the front of it. And there are names on it. I went back that evening or the next day. The concrete cross is there. Now, whatever names were on the plaque, they're gone for years. They're weathered off. But that was the grave. That was the family, as I proved later. There was a relative in the village. He was dying at the time, Johnny McPad, on the Newmarket Road. And I was to visit him. And I asked him. And as it turned out, they were the same family. And Johnny McPad's uh, nephew, I think, in England, he had done the family tree. And after I had made, I was given days and weeks and months of inquiries around the place as to what the hood this family might be, Johnny turned up 17 A4 pages of family history done by this man. So I photocopied the whole lot and I sent them off out to the States to Bridget Tomasiccio. I'll never forget her name, even though my memory is hopeless. I remember Bridget Tomasiccio. But that was the Johnny that I knew, as I said. To sell him a window for me, mess. When I did need information about anybody going back 50, 60, 70, even 100 years, Johnny was the person you'd go to. And that ends our tribute to Johnny O'Mahony of Touring Dove, Bally Desmond. And I can honestly say that those who have got to know him since in God's home won't certainly be bored. And as they say, ni veha lehe de reach. Coming up in part three in a few moments, more on the poems that could change your view on life, especially your life and how you view it. And as the man who compiled the book now lives in San Francisco Bay, we might as well get his views on how they're coping with COVID-19. So go put the kettle on. You won't want to miss any of part three. It's that 
that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. While this pandemic, virus, coronavirus, COVID-19, call it what you like, while this has been raging and we've been raging a battle against it, most of the people that I've spoken to on these radio programs have managed to do something that they normally wouldn't or wouldn't have had time for. Take in a Shannon-based author, Alice Taylor, for instance, who by accident came across a book which belonged to her late sister. The book is called Ten Poems to Change Your Life. Initially, Alice wasn't greatly impressed by the title, but by reading one poem per day, the book gradually grew on her, leaving Alice to firmly believe, if you approach it in the right manner, these ten poems can do exactly what they say on the tin, if you'll pardon that overworn cliché. Its author, Roger Housden, earlier told us how to approach one poem in particular, but let's see now how Alice got on. I read the introduction and then I read the first poem. No, there was eating and drinking in the first poem. It was a poem by Mary Oliver. She starts it off. And um, when I had it read, and then he has, I don't know what's the right word, analysis is probably the wrong word, I can't know, but he does a, a kind of a, uh, his view on the poem is the best way to put it, and how, why he chose this poem. And now what he writes afterwards is absolutely amazing as well. He's a super writer. And um, John, when I had the poem read, and when I had read his interpretation of the poem, I kind of thought one of these poems a day is sufficient. There is so much in the poem and so much in what he says about it. 
I think your mind isn't capable of absorbing anymore, you know. So, rent, I thought, I'll let it there now, and I'll do it. I'll let it next poem for another day. And what I did then, John, I read a poem. Not every day, but not long spans in between. They span an amazing range of um, ideas. They go and they range an, an amazing span of time. They, they're from a way, way back from the mystics to right up to date. But I must say, he's right. These ten poems could change your life because you know the way it, well, we were all reared Catholic and, 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 and grand and I'm still a practicing Catholic and, 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 and love my religion. But I was reared by a father who always told us, now every other belief is as right as us. We're all marching to the sound of different drums but we're all aiming in the one direction and at the time like we kind of thought well huh but sure the man was right of course because he, he was a farmer I think he's God he saw God in the divine you know in, in the natural and the divine plan so you know there's a, 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 the whole span and I think after reading uh, Roger Houston um, I could see that he was encompassing such a wide span of beliefs now, I go out sometimes to Dorsh and Beira out in Ali it's a most beautiful place looking out over the Atlantic well, what a view from there. Yeah. Beautiful, yeah. the Buddhist centre. And, um, you know, Roger Hoffman, you know, caused me to think, we're, we're all right, you know, Catholic, Jews, Muslims, and the whole problem is our intolerance of other beliefs. Why can't we live and let live? Why do we have to kill the fellow who doesn't believe as we believe? I mean, you know, it is, it's the cause of so much trouble. This book in a way, is an umbrella over all beliefs and all interpretations. And that's why, that's why John, I brought it up to you. I really think it's an amazing book. just looking at another one of those poems and that is The Time Before Death written by, is it Kabir? Kabir, yeah. And just let me read a few lines for you from that and yeah. you might just speak to me about them. The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life you will have the face of satisfied desire. Some people might think that what he's saying is that there is no such thing as an afterlife. Absolutely. What he's saying, actually, he's not even interested in an afterlife. Uh, he's not a Catholic and he's not a, a Hindu or anything. He's uh, actually, Kabir was a Muslim who uh, lived in India uh, in uh, the 16th century, I think. He's saying, no, this is the moment we have. Don't concern yourself or worry about what's going to happen after death. Concern yourself with the, your attitude of mind right now. Can I ask you about how you and your family and your community are dealing with the virus, COVID-19, over there? And how overall do you think it's been handled and what's the future now for us? You mean how it's been handled or being handled in the United States? Yes. Yeah. Well, probably worse than anywhere in the world. 
you know, we have uh, an idiot in, um, <laughs> in the White House and hopefully he won't be there much longer. But right now he is. Uh, he's been actively trying to deny that what's in front of everybody's noses. Now, he's done that for the last four years in different ways, but you simply cannot deny the reality of 135,000 people dying. An incredible increase in the last uh, few weeks in uh, many of the big states, including this one, California. Although at the beginning, California really seemed to have it pretty much under control. The governor of California really is and has been doing everything he can, but it's not easy when the federal government isn't at your back. So, you know, that's, uh, I think, not only my perspective, but pretty much the vast majority of um, people in America. And the really, really desperate thing here, and this is, I think, true all over the world, probably, is that the people who really suffer the most are the people at really the, the lowest income scale. So where I live in the Bay Area, I think it's 70% of, of COVID-19 cases are in the Latino community. But the Latino community only makes up about 17% of the area population. You know, these are the people who are in the front line of working in supermarkets and delivery and everything else. So, you know, they're putting themselves on the line for all of us. I put it to him, you know, what frightens a lot of people away from poetry is they read a poem yeah. and they come away thinking, well, I have no idea <laughs> what the poet was, was on about yes. there. And they may come away with a completely opposite view. He reckons that's no harm. Yes, he's probably right, you know, hmm. because um, it will filter into your mind. He, he's right, John, because if you think back of the poems we learned in school, I mean, when we learned Hopkins, you I not clue what Hopkins was talking about. But something filtered through, John. And they open your mind. That's why we don't get it on the first reading. But they open little windows in your mind. And that's a good thing. So, from books that Alice has read to books that Alice has written. And of course, there are many to choose from. But let's narrow it down a wee bit to her current one, which is topical. A cocoon with a view. Now, this book does not bombard you with facts and figures about the disease itself, but instead it focuses on how we adapt to a new way of life in the self-isolation of the cocoon. The book reveals previously unobserved wonders and delights of the ordinary. In other words, getting our priorities stacked in the correct order, something that may not have been happening up to now. In the book, Alice makes the point but also asks the question, are we losing our connectedness? A good example would be the lovely experience of passing a stranger in a car on a country road and observing the driver raising a forefinger in salute to you. Unfortunately, nowadays, some people have doubled the amount of fingers in a salute that we won't go into in too much depth, but you know exactly what I mean. And by the way, I've got two editions of that as well, two <laughs> copies of that as well. So two copies seems to be in the air. Yeah. Uh, cocooning with a view, that came about pretty quickly. It did. I was already working on, 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 on something, which was a result of all the books that I have in my house that I inherited, which is, I was working on books from the attic, which would be out at Christmas, and O'Brien's parachuted in with the idea, Did you? would you think of doing something on, on the cocooning? And I thought, 
Well, I thought it was a great idea because, John, if you think about it, I remember, you know, my grandmother talking about the the Spanish flu and, you know, and and indeed, you know, people never forgot it, you know, the 1919, was it? Yeah. And, um, you know, they never forgot it. People never forgot the TB. People never forgot the polio epidemic. People never forget them. And in a way... The surest way of recording anything is to write about it at the time, the very, how ordinary people coped. Because, I mean, the facts will be there, the political agendas and all the big thinkers. But out of the ordinary fellow who was locked in in a cocoon, how did he manage from the day to day, you know, the good days, the bad days, and, you know, all this kind of thing. So, I actually, the, the cocoon, which of you, is actually a diary of what I did. You know, people that I've spoken to on the radio about the virus and how they have mm. coped, and they all say, well, it gave me time to sit back yes. and view the world and my life and people in yes. a different shade of light altogether. Yes. And one of the points you were putting forward in that is, I think you were in your favourite place on earth, Drumkeen Wood. Yes. And you were talking about a beautiful blonde dog and a beautiful blonde yes, owner. Right. And you waving, but you only got a response back from the dog. <laughs> and the lady was too immersed on her mobile phone That's and right. it led you to ask the question, are we losing our connectedness yes. and our friendliness? And that's a very good question. Yeah, that was pre-pandemic. Yeah. I'd say it was within weeks of the pandemic coming and I had sort of thought, God, what's going to happening to us? Because, um, you know, it, it happened gradually. We were losing our... Do you know the way now in rural Ireland people were wave out the window of a car to you and you'll salute people you don't know and it isn't being, you know, it isn't being intrusive. It's just connectedness, being aware that there's another human being in your vicinity, you know, and I think that's good for us. And it would be a pity if we Irish lost that, you know. We, we were becoming very sophisticated and all the rest of it. And in one sense, you know, you know, John, it was happening all over the country. Mm-hmm. And um, so then um, I think it made O'Brien's aware like that, that well, there, there's something going on. And the next time the pandemic struck like, and I thought, oh, my God. And you, you know what really brought home to me, John? You know, when, when, when we were doing anything here in the tidy towns, I would say, we'd get, well, we'd round up a mail. And my daughter used to say, oh, for God's sake, Mom, nobody knows what a mail is on you. But no, John, we all know what a mail is because it has become kind of uh, the new world, like, uh, you know, uh, Leo Brett talked about a mail and a mail was an old Irish thing and there's something lovely about a mail and I think that's what, that's what happened during the pandemic John we became a mail a mail to mind ourselves Absolutely and mm. of course thankfully we have taken it a little more seriously than Donald in the US oh, yeah, or Boris yeah, in the UK yeah. have taken it yeah. but we're, we're beginning just to become a little too complacent. A but, little. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, John, what it reminds me, Bishop, well, no, we had to test the waters because we couldn't all stay locked up forever. We were testing the waters. We are a bit like Jesus. We walk in water, but we're not like Jesus because we're, we're, the water is starting to shake and we're starting to, we might be sinking a little bit. So I think we're kind of maybe rowing back to firmer ground again. So we're what we're doing now is testing the waters, and um, but we'd have to maybe come back to the shore a little closer for a longer term so it's nobody knows you see in a way like the medical people are doing the best they can but they all say they're walking in foreign territory and everybody's feeling their way forward but we all have to be to use an old Irish expression John we all have to be a kuramuk yeah or be kuramuk be a kuramuk yeah, yeah absolutely mm. And that brings our programme to a close this evening. My thanks to all who took part and to you for your company on our weekly journey. 
Doc Martin was in sound this evening. And until we meet up again on Where the Road Takes Me, Sunday evening next at 7 on C103, this is John Green wishing you a safe, healthy and pleasant week. Goodbye for now. Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.